Good morning, Lighthouse family. We invite you to worship Jesus with us today, celebrating the reason for the season. Christ was born. 
for Mary, who was promised in marriage to Joseph. The angel told Mary that she would have a son whom she was to name Jesus. The angel said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. Mary asked, how could this be, as she was a virgin? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water Mary did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters 
Now 
It's an important thing for us to remember that this is not a time that is about presents. This isn't a time that's about decorations. This isn't a time about making sure that all of our plans come together and getting all the families together and going to 12 different houses and all that kind of stuff. This is a time that is focused on Jesus. And that's what we really want to prepare our hearts for as we enter into this final week leading up to Christmas. Uh, And there's a couple of things that are happening outside of this Sunday gathering uh, that I want to let you know about. The first thing is happening tonight at 5.30. And this is a a family gathering for those of you who have children or those of you who are young at heart. We are going to do an outdoor drive-in Christmas movie. We're going to be playing the star. We have this massive screen that we put on the side of the church in the parking lot. You get to drive up. There's going to be refreshments that are going to be delivered to your car in a totally sanitary and safe way. And then you get to watch the, the, the animated Christmas movie, The Star, which I think is one of the best-made Christmas movies in the, in the last few years, we get to watch that together as a family from the safety of our cars in our parking lot. That's tonight at 5.30. So if you want to come, you're welcome in the parking lot. The second thing I want to let you know about is our Christmas Eve service. Every year, that's one of the things I look forward to most, is our, our Christmas Eve service. And there's two ways you can watch, one from your home and one from our parking lot. At 3 p.m., we're going to have a live stream of our Christmas Eve service from right here. You can watch that at home at 3 o'clock, or you can watch at any point Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, or all into next year, okay? This is something you can do as a family, as a part of your preparation for Christmas, or if you would like to come and brave the cold with us and, and participate in that candlelight service where we get to pass the flame, that's gonna happen at 4.30 out in our parking lot. All you need to do is dress warmly and bring a face mask. That's all we ask that you bring. Everything else will be here. 4.30 to 5.30, one Christmas Eve candlelight service in our parking lot. I hope that you will join us. And with that, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'm going to make a little bit of a confession. I have a love-hate relationship uh, with Christmas carols, Okay. I love them so long as they stay in their lane. And their lane begins right after dinner on Thanksgiving night and continues somewhere after Christmas Day, maybe the 26th, 27th at that point. They're starting to get a little bit stale. But any time outside of that lane, Christmas carols are a little bit like yesterday's manna. They are not fit for human consumption. And yet... I don't know about you, but for me, the moment I'm done with Thanksgiving dinner, one of my favorite things to do is go pull out all of my Christmas vinyl records that have been gathering dust for 11 months, pull them out, stick them on the record player, and start decorating my home as Bing Crosby croons to me about a white Christmas, right? I love it. So I I love Christmas carols. And, And by the way, I'm not talking about Christmas carols like Santa Baby or Baby It's Cold Outside, okay? Those are just fluff, and quite honestly, the only baby I want to think about during Christmas was swaddled and laying in a manger. That's that's it. Um, I'm talking about the Christmas carols that our parents, parents, parents grew up with. Carols like we got to sing this morning. Because these Christmas carols are a lot like the psalms are in Scripture. They're not just songs that we sing. They're repositories for theological truth, and they're deep, and they're powerful. 
But the thing I've noticed as I've, I've begun to pay closer attention to the carols we sing is that not all Christmas carols are, are created equally. Some of our Christmas carols actually become repositories of false facts that then leak into our Christmas celebration in ways that can kind of twist our understanding of what actually took place that first Christmas Eve. And let me give you one example. Take the song, We Three Kings, right? We three kings are of Orient, are travel, bearing gifts, we travel afar. If you took that song at face value, you would begin to think that there were three kings from the Orient who traveled with gifts to meet Jesus on the night that he was born. And all of our Advent, or all of our um, creches, those, those little nativity scenes, all of those back that up. And yet almost every piece of that song is patently untrue, according to the biblical account. Let me give you just a few examples of, of some of the untruths that that Christmas carol inter, injects into our Christmas celebration. First off, we have no idea how many wise men visited Jesus. We use the number three because they brought three gifts, but there could have been two wise men and there could have been 20. We have no idea just that they brought three gifts. And they would not have traveled all by themselves, three kings or 20 kings or two kings, bearing these expensive gifts because there's robbers all along the roads that they would have traveled. So they would have had a huge retinue of people coming with them. It wouldn't have been the three camels and the three silhouettes at night following that star. It would have been a massive, massive humanity that's making that 900-mile trek from Persia or Assyria or wherever it is that they came from to Jerusalem. The second untruth that that song interjects into our celebration of Christmas is that they were kings at all. They weren't. They were, if anything, they were advisors to kings because as wise men, their jobs were to be court scholars, to bring educated perspectives to the decisions that kings would have made. And so these guys would have studied philosophy, they would have studied uh, other countries and their, their thinking and their prophecies, they would have studied astrology, they were known to be astrologers who studied the stars hoping to get some sort of perspective of what was happening in the grand scheme of things so that they could then give direction, wise counsel to the kings that they represented. So they were not kings, they were advisors to kings. And finally, and perhaps the biggest piece of untruth that that particular song interjects into our Christmas celebration is that they were there on the night that Jesus was born. And I know your nativity has them there with their camels. They're all coming to bear their gifts to the little infant baby Jesus sitting in, in, the, in the, the, the feeding trough. But they wouldn't have been there on that night. In fact, it would have been at minimum nine months and probably upwards of two years for them to look up in the sky, see this bright shining star that they hadn't noticed before shining in the west over the land of Judea, figure out what the significance of that star portended, gathered up their retinue, got some gifts fit for a king, and made that 900-mile trek from Persia or Assyria to Jerusalem. It would have taken that long. So by the time they get there, Jesus would have been walking. He would have been talking. He would have been a toddler, not an infant like we have in our minds. 
So with that wonderful intro, we're going to start reading, but, but the question that it, it asks, the question that all of this begs is, why would these wise men have made this trek? I mean, they, they weren't Jews. They, they weren't waiting for their own Messiah. Why would they have taken this nine-month to two-year detour to come and visit a so-called king of a foreign nation? Well, there's a lot of, of detail that I'm going to try to pack into just a couple of, of sentences here. First off, it was the wise men's job to be aware of all of the philosophy and all of the prophecy of the foreign nations. Remember, it's their job to give wise counsel to the king. So they would have paid very close attention to other nations' prophecy. And these areas, Assyria and, and, and Persia, were full of men and women from, from Israel, not yet, don't put it up there yet, it was full of men and women from Israel who had been basically exiled from their land, and they had carried with them into exile a hope that there would come a day when a redeemer out of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed redeemer, would rise up and throw off the heavy yoke of the nations that were celebrating their fall. And they held with them prophecies like this one that we were just showing you a second ago. Let's throw it up now. They, would, they, they brought with them these hopes, like as articulated in Numbers 24. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter, will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the people of Seth. Edom will be conquered. Sire, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. These were the kind of prophecies that the people of Israel held on to, like a piece of wood floating in the midst of a storm as they are finding themselves sinking, feeling overwhelmed. Not yet. Don't put that one up there yet. That's totally later. So they would, have, they would have been holding on to this, and the wise men's job would have been to be aware of those kind of prophecies. And they would have also, because they're astrologers, they would have been studying the stars at night. And, and, and being, being astrologers, probably being Zoroastrians, they believed that Every person's soul was kind of tied to a, a heavenly body. And so, you know, and, and that body would kind of go with them throughout their life. That was one of their philosophical beliefs. And so when they looked up in the night sky and they saw a star that shined brighter than any other star in the night sky, and it was over in the west towards the land of Israel, they began to go, what could that suggest? What's going on here? And they linked it to this idea that a great person who would have immense impact in all of the world had been born. Well, who's the only person we can think of? And they began to, to look at what prophecy they heard, and they began to go, you know what? I bet the Messiah has been born. And so in that moment, they gathered up their group, they got gifts fit for the king of the Jews, and they made this long trek to Jerusalem, 900 miles, a year to two years that it took them. And now we'll pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem, and they asked, hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
Now, this seems totally innocuous to us because we're not aware of kind of the political movement that was going on in Israel. But for those Jewish listeners who were reading Matthew's articulation of the gospel of the Christmas story, they would have recognized just how sinister the story is getting right now. Because here comes this retinue of wise men coming into Jerusalem, into the land where King Herod reigns. And we don't know a lot about King Herod. We don't talk about him often. But Matthew's audience, being Jews, they knew King Herod well, and they knew what a megalomaniac King Herod was. You see, Herod was Rome's appointed ruler over this land. His power was, uh, uh, had been given to him by Caesar Augustus. But Herod so desperately wanted the world to remember him, so desperately wanted to leave his mark that he had undergone this massive building campaign, building giant edifices that would last long after he had died. He even rebuilt the temple, not because he worshiped the king of the Jews, but because he, every time they looked to the temple, he wanted them to think about him. He wanted to curry favor, even with the Jewish population, so they would just shut up and let him lead. The other thing that the Jewish audience would have remembered about King Herod is that he was ruthless in his attempts to hold onto his power any way possible. Herod killed every single person that he felt was a, a possible challenge for his political power. He even killed his own kids because he thought that they might rise up against him. In, in fact, Caesar Augustus is quoted as saying, it would be better to be Herod's pig than his own son. This was not a nice man. He was not a benevolent leader. He was a ruthless ruler that held the, the, the promised land in his palms, white-fisting it, not letting anybody near it, and destroying anybody who got in his way. And so, into this come the wise men with all of their guards coming into Jerusalem to the palace of, of Herod, saying, hey, Where's the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him because we saw his star. We know he's alive and we want to worship him. So knowing what we know, verse three is ironically feels like understatement. Verse three, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's a very gentle way of putting it. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed right along with him. I can only imagine what was going on in Herod's heart as these representatives of a foreign kingdom are before him with gifts fit for a king saying, hey, you must know, where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. And he's thinking, do you not know who I am? I'm the king of the Jews. Is there something that you know that I don't know? And I'm sure at this point, he had red flags going off and he said he was, he was going crazy. And so he does what any king does when, he, when they feel sideswiped. He goes and he grabs people he think might be in the know and he pulls them in. And in this instance, 
He grabs the Sanhedrin, the, the kind of Jewish leaders, and all of their teachers of, of prophecy, and he says, guys, what's going on? Do you have any idea what this group of wise men are talking about? Verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. Well, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now they quote Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's pause for a moment, because here's something I find to be totally ironic. On the one hand, you have a bunch of wise men from the East who are not Jewish, who only kind of tangentially know Jewish prophecy, but they have looked to the stars, they've seen the signs, they've, they've put two and two together, and they've come to worship Jesus. They've come to worship this Messiah, whomever he might be. And on the other hand, you have the Jewish theologians, the pastors of the people of God, who have all the prophecies, they've spent their entire lives memorizing it, and they completely miss the signs. Not only that, but there's no record of them ever even taking the six-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to go check this out. There's no indication that they ever even went with this group of wise men to see if what they believed was true was true. And it leaves me asking, why? The only thing I can come up with is that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling leaders, were okay with the status quo. They were okay with this very precarious political power share where Herod gets his power from the Caesar of Rome, and they have their power because he allows them to remain in power. And when he is upset, when he's disturbed, they're disturbed because he's afraid his power is going to be shaken and they're afraid their power is going to be shaken. So the very people who should have been most excited about the birth of the Messiah were actually disturbed right along with the Gentile leader who doesn't believe in, in, in the Messiah at all. It's sad, isn't it? After Herod had found out from them where the Messiah was supposed to be born according to prophecy, verse seven, Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. So when did it show up? Nine months ago, a year and a half ago? Okay, uh-huh. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I might go and worship him as well. Yeah, Herod, I'm sure that that's exactly what you had in mind. You want to go worship the one that you feel is going to usurp your position of power. Mm -hmm. Great. Thankfully, they don't do what Herod wanted them to do, which is go find the Messiah, come back, so that he can then go snuff the Messiah out before it can ever begin. Instead, God has other plans. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, these wise men and their whole group of, of helpers and, and uh, defenders, they went on their way. 
And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now let me pause for just a second. Is this a real star? I mean, is this like we have the Christmas star that is supposedly going to be t- tomorrow night, right? On the 21st, you got kind of when, when Saturn and uh, Venus kind of come together and form this Christmas star, first time in 800 years. I love it. I think that's beautiful. Was it a real star like that? Because there's some indication that there was one of those confluences of that Christmas star right around when Jesus was born. Or was this an angel that was posing as a star? Because the last time I checked, stars don't move around in the sky so much. So this could have been an angel. I have no idea. Scripture's silent on it. But suffice it to say, the star moves over the house in Bethlehem, leads them directly to the place where Jesus is at. And notice, it's not a stable where they come and meet him, it's a house. Time has passed. Joseph and Mary have finally found lodging and are living in Bethlehem at this point. So when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of symbolism has been tied to these three gifts. Gold being a gift fit for a king. Frankincense, which was one of the primary things used in the the incense that was burned in the temple, is a gift fit for one to be a head priest of God. And myrrh, a, a, a type of resin that was used for embalming and, and anointing a person's body for burial is the perfect gift for one who would give his life to redeem God's people. And yet, there is no way that these pagan wise people understood the symbolism of the gifts that they were given. For them, it was just gifts that were fit for a king. And... It was God's way of providing for Jesus and Mary and Joseph because what was going to happen is that they were going to have to get out of town really, really quickly. You see, Herod was not willing to allow a potential rival to the throne to live. And so Herod was about to go on a rampage. And the wise men felt compelled to go a totally different way. They didn't go back to Jerusalem when they headed home. And after they had left, Joseph and Mary or Joseph has a vision from an angel saying, you've got to get out of Bethlehem because Herod is coming for, for Jesus. And so Joseph and Mary pack up all of their belongings, probably wasn't a lot, take their little son Jesus, and they head out to Egypt. And thankfully, God has provided for them, right? He's provided resources in, in these gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that can bankroll them in their trek to Egypt while they wait for Herod to die. And when Herod catches wind of the fact that the wise men have gone home a different route, he smells a rat, he gets really irate, and he goes on a killing spree. He gathers up every boy, every Jewish boy, two years and younger, which gives you some indication of the window of when they said that the star appeared, he gathers them all up and he executes them. No, there will be no rival to my throne. Are you beginning to feel like this story isn't all that Christmassy, right? 
Like, we, we love, we're dreaming of a white Christmas, and it was a silent night and all that stuff, and everything is calm and bright. You start going, no, dude, this is dark. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, the first thing that really stands out to me is this juxtaposition of power. Because on the one hand, you have power represented by Herod, and it's a ruthless power. It's the kind of power that is celebrated in the world where might makes right. And Herod is the epitome of might. He has an entire Roman army behind him to do his bidding. He has all the financial and political resources he needs to make his will done, so much so that he can say, I want children killed, and they're killed. And he is aligned against Jesus, an infant child born to a couple of nobodies from Podunk, you know, Nazareth. They've got nothing, no power, no political clout. If there was ever a David versus Goliath story, it's this one. Only David had a sling and a stone. Jesus doesn't even have that to defend himself. And yet... For me, what this reminds me of is the fact that it accentuates the sovereignty of our God. Because in the midst of this very lopsided battle between Herod and baby Jesus, God reminds us again and again and again through this Christmas story that he is sovereign and he stands above all things. And no matter how powerful Herod thinks he is, he cannot stand up against the creator and the sustainer of the world. And every single one of his plans are thwarted. All of his schemes come to nothing because he's battling against God. And what we see through this Christmas story is that step after step after step, God provides, protects, and guides Jesus and his family to bring about his purpose and his plans. Oh, yeah, you want to destroy Jesus? Yeah, that's not going to happen. Joseph, I need you to go ahead and exit stage left. You guys need to head to Egypt for a little bit. Yeah, I know you're gonna, you, you, you haven't been saving up a lot of money living here in Bethlehem. Here, I had some non-believing people way from a different country come to bring you exactly what you need so you can live out these couple of years until Herod's gone. And once Herod dies, God says, okay, you can go back. But I just want to let you know that the person coming in after Herod is going to be almost as ruthless as him. He's not going to take kindly to you living there in Bethlehem right under his shadow. So I want to encourage you to go somewhere else. And so that leads Joseph and Mary to end up back in Nazareth, which is yet another prophecy that is fulfilled because God had said he that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And out of Egypt I have called my Redeemer. All of these prophecies that seem like they're, you know, what does Bethlehem and Egypt and Nazareth have in common? Well, through all of this, God is fulfilling his purpose and his plans. And even Herod, the most powerful ruler in that region, cannot stand up against it. And I think that this is really important and, and, and really good news for us in this season. Because let's be honest, we're living in a really dark time. This season, particularly this season of, of our second COVID lockdown, we need to be reminded that no matter what political power is brought against us, no matter what sort of attempts there are 
to thwart God's purpose and his plans, they will come to nothing. Because I know that there are some of you listening to my voice right now who feel really discouraged because it seems like the world is winning. It seems like you look at the decisions that are being made and you look at politicians that say one thing but don't follow their own guidelines and the edicts that are being handed down and the effects it's having on on restaurants and businesses and even us and people losing their jobs and you go, this isn't right. It feels like they're winning and that there's no accountability. And then on the other hand, there are some of you who are listening to me right now who are terrified about the place we find ourselves in, as you see the numbers of people contracting COVID rising, it's no longer just a number. Now it's somebody you know. Now it's a family member or a friend. In some cases, it's you. And you just wonder what's going to happen. God, where are you in this? And you are feeling frightened And to all of us, regardless of where we find ourselves in this conversation right now, may I simply remind you that no matter what happens, God is sovereign over it. And while we might feel overwhelmed, he's not. This doesn't take him by surprise, and he's not overcome by it. In fact, God has a long track record of taking the brokenness of this world and bringing beauty out of the ashes, of of, bringing about his purpose and his plans even in and through the messiness and the brokenness of this world and through people who would stand against the very things that he is bringing about. It doesn't matter who aligns themselves against him. Our God is sovereign and his will will be done. And we can rest in that no matter how dark this season feels. One last thought as the worship team comes forward. You know, it's interesting to me that God would speak to Gentile scholars and and (laughs) astrologers living in Persia and Asia. It's fascinating to me that he would go out of his way to speak their language, to speak through the stars, but he did. And that star led them into Jerusalem and ultimately led them to the Messiah. Even when God's own people missed it, they didn't miss it because they responded to the star. And guys, there are men and women all around us, right around this building, all around you where you live, people at your work, kids at your school. There are men and women who were created in God's image that he loves just as deeply as he loves you and me. One of the beautiful things about the fact that he reached out to those wise people through the star was it's a reminder that this Messiah wasn't just for Jews. He was for everyone. This was good news of great joy for everybody, including them and including you and me and including our neighbors, even if they don't recognize that God loves them. But the truth of the matter is God continues to reach out to those neighbors that don't know him, that don't call him Lord, that don't even recognize that they were created in his image. He's still reaching out to them as well, just like he did to those wise guys with the star. But the difference between them and and, and the Magi is that our neighbors, most of them don't look to the stars for direction. They don't look to the night sky trying to discern truth. And yet God still speaks their language. He just uses different stars. 
earlier this year, we studied the book of Philippians. I just want to take a look at one passage from the book of Philippians that hammers this truth home. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, My dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now pay attention. Here comes the payoff. Then you will shine amongst them like stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. God continues to speak to the people around us. He continues to radiate the hope that we aren't defined by the brokenness of this world, that the the powers that be that are currently holding the strings and pulling the strings aren't gonna get the last word. But instead of using stars in the sky, he uses you and me and anybody else who allows him to have access to our lives and says, here I am, help yourself to me. It's our lives lived out from a position of faith, lived out in our neighborhoods, lived out in our workplaces. That doesn't mean that our lives are going to be comfortable. It doesn't mean that our lives are going to be free of of conflict, just the opposite. It's how we navigate through this with our eyes fixed on him instead of our eyes focused on our circumstances. It is through the way that we live that God is appealing to this world. It is our lives that have been shaped by his values that say, I am going to submit my freedoms and my will and even my fears. I'm gonna submit those to him and I'm going to allow him to guide my steps because at the end of the day, he loves them just as much as he loves me. He loves the taggers that, that wrote some obscene statement on our wall just the other day. He loves them just as much as he loves us. And he is reaching out to them and saying, do not push me away any longer because I love you. I gave my life for you. Come home. Guys, we, the, we get to be the kind of people who simply through the way that we live get to radiate the hope that we have found in him that our lives would shine like stars as we hold firmly to the hope that we have found in him. That's my prayer. That lighthouse, this building, would not be the church, but that we would be the church. And that we would live differently than the way that the world is living. That if we're gonna battle, we would battle on our knees in prayer. And if we're going to pray for non-believers, even people who would persecute us, that we are not going to pray curses upon them, but that we would pray blessing. That we would pray prayers, God, reveal yourself to them and help yourself to my life. Use me to do that. That's my prayer for us today is that we would submit our lives to him and say, help yourself to me, that my life might shine for you so that others who are far from you would draw near and that they would call you Lord. It's never been about our names being made great. It's about his name being made great. And that's the message to us this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the ways that you love us. I'm grateful for the ways that you use us. We are imperfect. We don't deserve it, and yet you do it anyway. And for that, we say thank you. We pray that you would radiate in this world through us. May our lives 
radiate your love into our spheres of influence, into the lives of our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. We pray that we would reflect your heart and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would overcome our own humanity and our own imperfections so that your name is made great. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. What he has done in our lives. All right, guys. Yeah. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb. Till I met you
Exit stage left, enter stage left. Hey, a um, couple of things. One, I am just so excited to get to gather with some of you on Christmas Eve. If you want to join us, 4.30 out in the parking lot, would love to see you there. If you're not comfortable being in person, even with people wearing masks outside, totally understand. You can join us from 3 p.m. on on Christmas Eve. And then next week, next Sunday... Typically what we do is, is a time to, to kind of remember and celebrate, and we are not going to let go of that. Pastor Jeff and I are going to be up here, and there is some beautiful things that have come from the ashes of this season, and we are going to lean in, and we're going to begin to share some of the stories of how we've seen God moving as we have walked through this dark valley we found ourselves walking through this year. He's been incredibly faithful, and next Sunday, we get to celebrate that. So I encourage you, I can't wait to, to get to share that with you. Have a wonderful day. If there's something you're carrying and we can pray for it, you can email it to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you want to give financially, I know it's almost the end of the year. If you want to give, you can do so from lighthousecommunity.com. There's a couple of links there to give. But I'm just so grateful that we get to be on this adventure together following Jesus. He is our true north. He's our north star. And if we keep our eyes on him, he will lead us through this. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. I love you, and I'll see you soon. Merry Christmas. You come, my